Hello, I'm Mark Thomas. Welcome to The Things About Us. This is the podcast that looks at British identity. Who do we think we are? Does it match up to reality? What's in the gap in the middle? This week's show is about land. Who owns it? What we can do about it? And the wondrous significance of a document most of us hardly know about. The Charter of the Forest. There is a Tory MP called Richard Drax in Dorset. (laughs) (laughs) He's a man who was photographed two elections ago with his campaign Land Rover parked in two disabled parking bays. That kind of gives you the measure of the fella. He is opposed to all form of subsidies apart from when he's getting farming subsidies, and it's about half a million. Mm-hmm. He's opposed to climate change thinking, because actually this is just something that naturally occurs, and absolutely terrible, this whole idea is foisted upon us by Liberals, unless he's getting subsidies for his solar and wind farms, <laughs> which he does. He has an estate called Chambre House, which he inherited from his family, who made their money in the slave trade and still have an estate in Barbados. His estate is 11 square miles. He has the longest privately owned wall in England. It is seven miles long. It runs along the side of the A31. Richard Drax said, and I quote, I, like many of my fellow countrymen, believe this country to be full. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 11 square. <laughs> you see, for me, I think as a general rule of thumb, you can tell someone's class by how many steps there are to their front door. One working class, two or more middle class, eight, twat. That's <laughs> Richard Drax, he only has one step to his front door, but the distance from his gate to the front door is a mile! It's a mile. When your garden path is a mile, it's a mile. He could put the fucking Calais jungle in his garden path. And halfway up there, there's a big sign saying, Climbers can kill. Take a break. A mile. <laughs> Do you know what the percentage of the British landmass there is, of the UK landmass that, that we live on, that, that is residential? Anyone shout a number? Two. Two? Two? Anyone? Five? Anyone else? Twenty-six. That was a fucking optimistic guess. That was very. God bless you for having that. Uh, no, four goes down to one once you take out the gardens. The rest is infrastructure, church, state, queen, oligarchs, corporations, aristocracy. Tesco included in corporations. <laughs> but thank you for joining in. <laughs> that little bit of the colouring page. (laughs) We live on 1%. Do you know what represents 2% of the UK landmass? Pubs. Pubs? No, don't be fucking silly. (laughs) Do you think there are twice as many fucking pubs as there are fucking residential areas? It might seem like that when you're fucking in them, but they're not. I'm not in Newcastle with someone with the, with the spoons. No, no. <laughs> now, what, was it, what do we have? What else have we got? Bodies of water. Crown. Golf Bodies of water. Golf courses. Absolutely fucking right. 2% of the UK landmass, twice as much as our residential landmass, is golf courses. Wow. Golf. Golf is fucking. 
fucking It's not the fucking migrants, it's the golfers coming over here with their funny fucking clothes. They speak differently and they keep themselves to themselves. They don't want to fucking integrate. <laughs> Some of you are going, are you talking to me? I do, I fucking hate golf. If you're sitting here going, oh, I, I play golf, that's, it's shit. And you're shit for playing it. It fucking destroys an ecosystem with a homogenous, pasteurised vision of a fucking countryside. And you need so many bats to play the fucking game. Every other game. One bat, cricket, one bat, table tennis, one bat, arguably snooker, one bat, golf, 19 bats, and you need a fucking slave to carry them. <laughs> the only decent golf in this country is crazy golf, and everyone in this room knows that. <laughs> crazy golf was invented at St Andrews Golf Club in Scotland in the mid-19th century, where women wanted to play golf. But the men, they knew that if women lifted their arm above their shoulder, their womb would drop out. <laughs> so the men let them go putting, lest there be a mass outbreak of lesbianism. So the women went putting, the working class saw it and thought, fucking brilliant, put it on the seaside, give it a clown face, give it a windmill. Crazy goals! <laughs> brilliant game, best sport ever, why? Because it's the only one you can play and eat an ice rolly at the same time. <laughs> the day I hear the words, my tiger! Hold me, Magnum. That's when I watch sport like golf. <laughs>My name is Guy Standing. I'm an economist, uh, been a professor at uh, SOAS University of London. I'm also the co-founder and nowadays honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network. Let's just look at exactly what we mean by the precariat. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, it's people having unstable labour mm. without a sense of future. It's people relying on money wages without benefits, mm. but volatile wages that aren't secure and in debt constantly. But fundamentally, most importantly of all, it's people who have a sense they're losing rights of citizenship. They're losing the capacity to be ordinary human beings as members of society. They feel like supplicants. They have to ask for favours, they have to satisfy bureaucrats, they have to rely on their parents, they have to rely on people giving charity. More and more people feel that either they are in that situation or they are likely to be in that situation. So we're looking at, say, like the, uh, the benefit system. Correct. We are looking at a system which is designed to be punitive. Correct. Which is designed so that you go there and have to prove your worth. Right. of getting this and then money. prove it again and again guess what's got six percent of our land base anyone six percent grouse estates is absolutely right fucking bang on bang on see that's the kind of heckle <laughs> That's the kind of, like, I'm not saying, but you just need to concentrate, all right? Be in the room. Now, that was lovely. Grouse estates, 6%. In England, it's 4%, but if you include Scotland's grouse estates, it takes the UK up to 6% of our land mass. Grouse. The grouse have 
I got more fucking rum. And it ends badly for them. I will accept that. <laughs> The number of people relying on food banks has multiplied fivefold and in some areas tenfold, and rough sleeping. Is there any Briton alive at the moment who hasn't seen rough sleeping increase? We have a situation where the social fabric is, is fraying rapidly. All of us have got a very different view of what a country, our country is, what does it mean? I've got a very different view of what Britain is like to Nigel Farage's view, which I think is mainly a mythical post-war 50s countryside full of warm beer, fish and chips, cricket on a summer's day, pulling a woman's hijab before going to the proms, Elgar, Jerusalem, wearing tweed, wanking over swimwear catalogues, football picnics, sandwich spreads and sex once a month in a country cottage with one foot on the ground while the wind gently wafts open the curtains and the camera dissolves to fade. That... I think is Nigel Farage's vision of Britain, and it's, and it's not mine. Now, I think most of us, if, we, if you admit you have a vision, what does it mean to be British? And I think somewhere all of us got a vision that involves the opening shot of the BBC's Coast series. Do you know what I mean? So that when we think of Britishness, we do think of the land. We think of, you know, the peaks and the hills up in the Peak Districts. We think of the mountains and the, the ranges over in the Lake District. We think of the Cornish coastal paths. We think of waves crashing in. We think of the Salisbury Plain and Stonehenge. And we think of the White Cliffs of Dover. And it is, for the life of me, I can't work out why on earth would we want the White Cliffs of Dover as our geological psychic link with national identity? Because if you look at the White Cliffs of Dover, they're not as white as you think they are. They're a bit grubby. They're not as impressive as you're told that they are. And they're actually falling apart and eroding under our very... OK, you might want that <laughs> as a national image. But the point, just as the same way as you might want the Wayne, um, you know, the, the, um, the constable, the, the Hay Wayne painting, which is rather beautiful. And you think that represents that bucolic summer of England. But actually, what is it? It's a trolley in a pond. And actually, that's really what it is. That's who we are. Where does identity come into this? How do you find, you know, where's this sense of worth? Where's this sense of collective being that all of us need? The institutions that protect us, the institutions that give us voice, the institutions that emphasise altruism, and reciprocity, you know, I will help you because I expect you to help me, that sort of uh, mentality. They stand against the market. They, 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 they provide values and barriers to markets. Now, if you strip those and you whittle them away, as has happened in the last 20 years in particular, but started in the 80s, if you strip those out, you leave people vulnerable and individualized. 
They feel like the system is not helping me. No, there isn't, there isn't something I can rely on to give me my dignity, to give me my sense of belonging, that identity, okay? And that identity comes from class. I belong to a particular class. It comes from a community. I know I'm a member of the community. And it also comes from the sense of the commons. one of five nations that does not have a written constitution. One of five. Some of the other ones, uh, one of the other countries that doesn't have a written constitution, New Zealand. So they're doing very well, so it's good to be associated with New Zealand. So that's a positive thing. One of the other countries without a written constitution, North Korea. So it's a mixed bag. <laughs> one of the other countries without a constitution that's written down is Israel. Because once you write the constitution, you then have to give it a map that applies to, and they're problematic with borders. <laughs> <laughs> some, of, uh, some of you working out going, I'm, I'm not sure we can laugh at that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'd be expelled from the Labour Party. <laughs> It's well known that Israel takes up fucking large swathes of land and actually has got illegally occupied settlements. That's the whole point, that international law recognises them as illegal. The only two countries in the world that do not recognise Israel's settlements as illegal are Israel and America. So I think we can say that the vast majority of the world was on my side for that gag. <laughs> Um, here's why we haven't got a written constitution. Barons. Barons, Magna Carta. Right? Basically, Magna Carta is a deal between the king and the barons, and it sets up the idea of trial by jury. So that no man, that's it, the rule of law. The, the so if a man is accused of a crime, they will be judged by their peers. That's how it works. If a woman is accused of something, she'll be judged by everyone, especially how she's wearing and what she's got on, if it's off the shoulder in the house upon. So the, the point being was that's what it is. And the idea was you create law that then sets precedence in its interpretation, and then the precedents are judged to be correct or incorrect by sort of ruling people with wigs and possibly sort of like larger states. That's how it works. So you have this unwritten code. Essentially, the barons were part scrap metal merchant and went, don't fucking put it on paper. They're only traction. So <laughs> that's why we have an unwritten constitution. Now, the commons are an integral part of being a Brit, but being somebody who's a British person. And it goes back to 1217, when two documents were sealed in the original St Paul's Cathedral. One was the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta basically says every person in this country has a right to equal treatment before the law has a right for due process, a right to be represented, a right to, to fight inequities. That is a fundamental, important document that sets the whole of our country and the rest of the world. It's defined common law. But the other document was called the Charter of the Forest. And it was more subversive. It was more important in defining our country through the history books than even the Magna Carta. 
know them, my friends. Britain is the only country with an economic charter. The charter of the forest. It is the fucking thing. Fuck the Magna Carta. The Magna, the charter of the forest was signed and sealed two years after the Magna Carta. The charter of the forest establishes the notion of the commonweal, of the commons, things that we share. That all of us have got a right to thrive and prosper and to live and to get sustenance and to take shelter and eat from the things that we own communally. And we have that right by virtue of being born. It is the fucking historical I saw it today. The document is in Lincoln Castle. There are two copies left in the entire world, one in Lincoln Castle, one in Durham. And I went to see it today, and I walked in there, and the tourist, the guy there, he said, right, you hit the Magna Carta. I said, no, I want to see the Charter of the Forest. And he said, I know you. Right, yeah, it's more egalitarian. I'll show you. <laughs> Fucking right, it's a brilliant document. And it goes back to 1217. This is the thing that links us and our history to the renationalisation of the railways and the living wage. It's the first document to be an environmental charter, protect the environment, the commons. It's the first document in British history or any other history to say everybody, everybody has a right to subsistence, a right to live, a right to a home, a right to work, a right to access raw materials in the commons to have a life of dignity. And that, that, if you look at the, the struggles throughout our history, including the peasants' revolts, the civil war in the 17th century, the chartists in the 19th century, it's been systematically about the in, uh, fighting, the enclosure and taking of our commons. Now our commons are not just land, that's very important, but water, the air, all our resources, our social amenities, the commons include the institutions that society has created for not only this generation, but for future generations. So the National Health Service became a commons in 1968, 20 years after it had been established as a universal social service. And it's very much part of the British tradition. That's why we value the National Health Service so much. It's part of the commons just as our public libraries, our museums, our theatres, all of these things are part of what we've inherited as a people, if you like. Well, what's happened since Thatcherism came in is she's, she launched, in effect, the plunder of the commons. I mean, South Africa, right. they've got it in their constitution that the I government have, has to materially improve the lives of the citizens. I work on that. Right, but you know, it's the, it's the one thing there, do you know what I mean? It's the, the one constitution that has that, that amazing line in it. But we've had it for centuries with this document. That's right. I mean, it, it has the distinction of being longer on the statute books 
than any other piece of legislation in history. For generations after it was sealed, every church in England had to read it out in entirety four times a year. It's a fucking beautiful thing, and it used to be read out four times a year in church. And because people didn't read, they read it out, so the plebs would be at the back of the church, all the squires would be at the front, and the vicar would read it out. So the people at the back knew that the people at the front were being told what laws they had, and the people at the back, the people at the front also knew that the people in the back had been told that they had been told that they knew what the laws were. So it was a really egalitarian thing, and it was abolished in 1971 by the Tories. A member of the House of Lords asked the Minister of Justice, that's this government, right? This government asked the Minister of Justice, are you going to have equivalent celebrations as you've had for the Magna Carta in 2017? He said, no, no, no. Uh, the document is was of passing interest. It's of no, no lasting influence. And internationally, it, it is irrelevant. Now, when I came to write the book on the plunder of the commons, I'd contacted the American Bar Association. And the top man in the American Bar Association, he wrote to me and he said, actually, Guy, the Charter of the Forest was probably more important than the Magna Carta in formulating the American Constitution. Wow. So we have this document that is was, was over 800 years ago, was created, and... This gives us economic rights. This gives us a sense of communality, that this is ours. That actually, when we talk about our land, our country gives us a stake in it. And we don't have to have a stake through, uh, through inheritance of wealth or whether we made money. We have the stake because we're born. And that's a really, really crucial thing. So we have this document. It exists up until 1971. That was finally repealed in 1971. It says, we have to preserve what we have today, not just for ourselves, but for our children and grandchildren and and beyond. And that is what makes it such a powerful unifying force, you know? And, And if you've sacrificed your commons, the people who lose most of all, are the precariat. Hmm. And it used to be called, back in the 17th and 18th centuries, the commons was called the poor's overcoat. You know, the commons provided the overcoat for everybody. What a great expression. And that's why I used in the book the analogy of what's called the Lauderdale Paradox. And the Lauderdale Paradox was written by uh, the Earl of Lauderdale, who was a bit of a radical in his time, in 1804, he wrote this essay with a long, long convoluted title. And basically his thesis was this. As private riches increase, public wealth goes down. That was his paradox. And the reason was that private riches increase by taking from the commons, from taking uh, sources of wealth, pushing up prices and depriving the public of those things. So he basically argued that private riches 
result in contrived scarcity of what the public, the commoners, need. So and he gave homes. Exactly. So homes, one of them. And he actually, in his essay, he, he mocked the very idea of water being privatised. He said, well, just imagine if water being privatised, which you couldn't really, you couldn't. Okay, because it would be so stupid to be denying people access to water because private wealth owns the water. And he joked, well, if he lived today, he would have lived to see that's precisely what has happened. The left has to rethink what is it we offer as the future. And the future must include a revival of our commons. Okay, we can't reverse history. But all those who've benefited from taking our commons and making money out of our commons owe the commoners compensation. Okay, as far as we can, we want to get those commons back. But meanwhile, they, they must pay compensation. Let me give you an example. Our land ownership in this country is more concentrated than in practically any country in the world. We have a situation where the Duke of Buclos inherited the little matter of 277,000 acres of good land in this country. How did he come to do that? Merely because he was the 10th descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. He didn't do a single day's work for that. And each year he gets from this government money to help him keep his land. He gets, he's received millions of pounds of subsidy paid by you and me as taxpayers. And we, we basically need to have a strategy saying, okay, we can't reverse history, but we can stop more of it happening, but we can demand that you pay into a commons fund we build up, levies. So this would be like the, the Norwegian National exactly. Wealth Fund. Exactly right. We do our little bit to encourage that next generation to have the courage. You may, you may cause, make fools of yourself. You may take the wrong directions, but do it. Mm. And I think that spirit has got to be conveyed by more of us for more of the time. You know, dare. Dare. And, and the loss of the cops, the loss of this sense of of reciprocity and and this loss of the sense of a future is 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 a powerful mix for a, an agenda to stop these bastards because the bastards are at their best offering a future of more consumption hmm. you know what i mean you, you, if, if if you obey the laws you do your duty as laborers you blah 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 blah, blah the country will get richer and trickle down and everybody will benefit. Well, it's a lie. The, it's was, a lie. This was the reaction to 2008. Yeah. So spend more. Stop, spend. Stop, don't stop spending. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, for, so to me, they have no future to offer other than endless consumption. Sharks of the forest. Our fucking historical heritage, my friends. Our roots and culture. And I'm thinking of trying to reintroduce it. <laughs> I've got, I've literally today, 
I've got a translation of the document and I'm going to print up fucking massive copies of it and I'm pasting it on this very long wall along the A31. <laughs> The Things About Us was written and performed by me, Mark Thomas, and produced by Susan McNicholas and Ed Morris. It was recorded on tour at the Darwin Library Theatre and at King's Place London as part of the London Podcast Festival. Thanks to Hilary from Lush for all the support and to Dr Feelgood for the music. <laughs>